Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. The Broken Meeple, Episode 22, The Re-Theming. On today's program, theme is the name of the game, what with my board gaming discussions, my top 10 and the future for the Broken Meeple. Join me today as I talk about controversial themes in board games, give my usual first impressions and board gaming news that have come up in the recent month, discuss my top 10 themes for board games, and discuss the future that awaits for the Broken Meeple. Hello and welcome back to The Broken Meeple. I'm your host Luke Hector and it has been a while since the last podcast. I did say these were going to come out monthly so that is probably the way it's going to continue. However, there is some very good Well, there's good and bad things on the horizon for the Broken Meeple, but I'll get into that in just a second. It's been a pretty busy month with board games in general, not just for the blog, but for playing them as well. But my life has also gone very busy in the social aspects because I'm currently trying to build up my self-employed business of accountancy, whilst also trying to juggle board gaming writing, board gaming podcasting, board game playing, my fitness, and of course a new girlfriend, which is going very well so far. Now, first off, you will notice that the voice quality on this has changed dramatically. Whether it's for the better or worse, I'll leave that to you guys to give me some feedback on. But I decided to look over a few tips that were given to me by the Not Enough Dice podcast team when I asked about their sound quality. Apparently, they use very basic headsets, but they use Coolburner in association with Skype for recording their podcasts. Now, I don't have that luxury because I don't have a way to record on Skype because I talk by myself, so I can't do solo recording on Skype. At least not to my knowledge. If anybody knows any different, please get in touch with me, I would love to know. But what I can do is still record on Audacity using my G93 my G930 headset from Logitech, which does me well for games and, you know, voicing game conversations. But I figured, let's see how that works for the podcast, because then I can sit in my study, I can talk at my PC, I don't have traffic noise in the background because it's effectively a closed room. Frankly, the only downside I can think of is that with the windows shut and the door shut, it gets very hot in this room, so I am going to be somewhat parched and partaking in a drink. Probably several, I suspect, at this rate, if I want to be living by the end of this podcast. Now, in terms of the Broken Meeple itself, I've had to do some serious thought lately as to how I'm going to continue this blog. I obviously want to continue with it. I like doing it. It's good fun for me. I like giving my opinion on things. I don't think of myself as opinionated at all. I just like to give my partake, sorry, I like to give my views, shall we say, on various topics. Now, I have previously been doing three formats for this blog, the written reviews, the podcast, and YouTube video reviews, all three of which were enjoyable to do up to a point. You see, with the time constraints I have, it's now very difficult to manage three separate channels of reviews and everything that there's going around. People like the Dice Tower do this sort of thing, but it's their day job. So it's quite easy for them to be able to manage video writing and podcasts on a regular basis. 
I think what I've been trying to do is measure up to that kind of standard too much. And bear in mind, this is a solo thing for me. So they have whole teams available across an entire continent to do it. And here's me, so you know, just myself in my flat trying to do what they do. And it's just not possible. I have to accept that fact. So what I have decided now, after some much deliberated thought, is that I need to cull one of the free mediums that I do. And re slightly regrettably, but I suppose in some ways a good thing, I have chosen to cull the YouTube channel. There is a chance maybe in the future it will rekindle itself, but if it does, it will probably be restricted to video game apps. That way I can record the video straight off my PC with my iPad linked to it, you don't have to see my ugly face, I'm sure that will benefit some of you entirely when you watch that channel, but it's also a lot easier to set that up than it is to set up a home recording studio in my flat, which doesn't lend itself well to home recording due to the weird lighting and also the background traffic noise as I live on a busy street. So it is a bit regrettable that I have to do that, especially as it seemed to be starting to pick up, but I have to think hard about balancing my work, my social and my blog life. It's not easy and you know this is just me when I don't have to worry about a family or anything like that you know I've got to juggle a girlfriend now but there are some people out there who have to juggle kids and family as well and I don't know how they do it but you know obviously they're better than me at that kind of thing. But that's what I'm gonna to have to do. What does it mean for the other two avenues though? Well in that case, the podcast is still going to continue and probably on a monthly basis, but it will still continue the same format with board gaming news, first impressions, a discussion topic, and a top 10 list. That I'm going to enjoy, and if this headset thing takes off, then I'll continue with that and hopefully the podcast will go to new heights. What I'm also thinking of doing though is if, with their permission, there is a group on Twitter hosted by Robin Lees. Uh, yeah, you can find his Twitter name at RMB Lees, and that's it, yep. And he hosts a podcast called Who's Podcast. It has several people talking at each other about various topics, and it's regulated very well, considering there's usually five or six people talking. If you've ever listened to a podcast where there's multiple people, you know just how hard it is to be able to get your word in sometimes. But on this occasion, I thought it was done really well. I've been invited to potentially appear as someone on the show, so I'm going to get into discussions with Robin on that, and it would be cool to join them, because I've met a lot of them, if not all of them nearly, at the UK Games Expo, and they're all good people. So it would be nice to get on that and maybe enjoy some podcast time where I actually get to talk with other people. I know I've done it a little bit on the Dice Tower Showdown, but the problem with the Dice Tower Showdown is that it's only on every now and again, and being in America, they also have to record at something like 2 in the morning GMT time, which is a little bit problematic for me on a Monday night to record at 2 in the morning for a podcast. It's really run me down. That's not to say I'm never going to appear on the Showdown again. I think it's really good fun. But I am going to have to think hard about how often I can do that. As for the written reviews, they are going to continue, hopefully at least once a week from my blog's perspective. Um, sorry, once a week? Sorry, I mean once every fortnight from my blog's perspective. But I'm going to be doing other written reviews for other sites. I'm in talks with GamesQuest, the very popular board gaming retailer online site, to do some guest blogging for them. Uh, board Game Extras, another local gaming site in the Hampshire area, is also potentially going to get me to do some guest blogging, but that may or may not happen. We'll have to see on time constraints. But I'm also 
doing some blog writing for Club Fantastiki, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, who are based in America, hosted by David Lowry, and that's been going well so far. So, you know, written reviews are going to be continuing for me in several locations. But what I'm also thinking of doing is devoting some time, either written or podcast time, to talking about solo games. I'll probably do it on a written perspective rather than a podcast perspective. I don't know. Maybe I might even be able to try and do some video thing for that, but probably unlikely because I don't quite see how I can do it without rekindling the whole home recording studio thing. So I'll have to think hard about which avenue I pursue for that. But what I want to do is devote some time to solo games and solo variants because I don't think this is touched on enough on Board Game Geek. There are occasional geek lists and I think there's one or two guys out there who occasionally mention these really obscure solo games that no one's ever heard of but I want to talk more about solo games that people will have either heard of or very popular ones or specifically solo variants in games that aren't normally designed for solo. You've got games like La Havre and Nations and even Agricola and stuff like that that can be played solo but are they fun to play solo? Sentinels in the Multiverse, Marvel Legendary, Ghost, you know, all those cooperative games can be played solo, but are they fun to play solo? That's what I want to get into because I live alone, therefore solo games are a big thing with me. If I'm on a quiet night and no one else is around, it's quite handy to be able to pull out a game that I enjoy playing by myself. I know it sounds a bit like Billy No Mates, but in the end, well, it's the modern world. You've got to accept that not everybody is free on every time to play a game. I've already slightly kickstarted this with my review on Friday. Check out my website for that. That's a cool little small deck building game that you only play solo. That's probably going to be the first lineup, but I've got other things in mind. A lot of my games that I've already reviewed have solo variants. There are some new games I can review with some solo modes in them. And I've even bought this really weird game called Thunderbolt Apache Leader, which is this huge game, really expensive, comes with all sorts of components, but it's only a solo strategy game. I don't know what possessed me to actually buy it, but maybe because I was just excited to get this under the way, or maybe because it was ranked, I think, 511 on Board Game Geek, and I thought, for a solo game this big, it must be pretty good. So I'm going to have fun seeing how that works. But that's essentially it, you know, the Broken Meeple is still going to continue, it's going to continue strong, but I have to accept that I have to free up some time and cull something somewhere. So for now, YouTube is going to cease production, if it rekindles in the future, it'll be a great, but that's going to have to rely on some time freeing up or a lottery win, I suspect. But without further ado, let's get on with the podcast as normal. This is my, now we're into my second year of doing this. Uh, The Broken Meeple started one year ago, and I've already done my anniversary special for that with my top 10 games of all time. I highly recommend at least checking out the top 10 list on BoardGameGeek if you don't want to listen to the podcast. But to be honest, please listen to the podcast. You know, there are multiple reasons why I do this, so it would be nice to have some people out there listening. This is now the second year, episode 22, I'm still going strong and it's still going to continue and the format is probably going to stay as it usually has, I'm quite satisfied with doing some news and first impressions, a discussion topic and a top 10 list, it makes the podcast nice and lengthy, you get what you want and you know if you want me to consider other segments and that then give me some feedback, I'd be interested to look into it and see if it's feasible. Maybe guest interviews or maybe getting other people on to do top 10 lists with me because I quite enjoy the banter that goes on like on the Dice Tower when three of them discuss their top 10s. So I've got some ideas but if you've got some ideas send them my way and I'd like to listen to them. 
Anyway, that's enough waffling on. Let's get on with episode 22, starting with some basic news. The first news I'm going to get into is StabCon South. This used to be called Mini Stab, but it's a gaming convention that goes on for over two and a half days, from Friday evening all the way to Sunday evening. And it's basically a really cool gaming session where basically everyone just meets up at the Juries Inn Hotel in Southampton and just plays games constantly. There's a library of games that's brought there. Not huge, we're not talking like UK Games Expo library, but there's enough there. But people can bring their own games and arrange to play big ones like Twilight Imperium 3, Eclipse, that kind of thing. And there's just all sorts to play. You know, it's not the it's not the Ritz, you know, we're not it's basically a bunch of tables and a lot of people sitting there playing games and having fun. What more do you want really? And you can stay over at the hotel if you're desperate. Me, I live in Portsmouth, so I'm just gonna drive home every night and get some sleep. I went to this before in April actually for tabletop day and I did the 36-hour charity marathon at the time. Um, look over my blog at that time period and you'll see more details on that. But this time I'm not going to do the marathon, I just haven't got the energy to do it in short notice. So I'm just going to turn up and play some decent games. And I should be there at least for the entirety of Saturday and Sunday, possibly Friday, we'll have to see. I can't neglect other responsibilities entirely. So. Certainly for two days I'm going to be there, but if you want to find out more, uh, contact me on the Broken Meeple page on Facebook or on Twitter. Failing that, you might be able to find it if you search for it on Facebook. It's called StabCon South, hosted by Tom Wintrell, and it should it's a good laugh, so I hope to see some of you there. Next in board gaming news, a, a slightly controversial topic this. It's not one that I'm particularly keen on, but maybe some people will get excited for this. Z-Man Games have revealed that they're going to reprint the original version of Carcassonne. Now you're thinking, well, it's a reprint, big deal, what's that supposed to mean? Well, this is effectively like Carcassonne 2.0. They're not changing the basic rules or anything, it's not like they're spin-off games but they're redoing all the graphics and artwork. The tile backing will still remain the same, so they claim that this will be compatible with other versions of Carcassonne, including the expansions, but the artwork is going to be nice and modern, really good, almost like deluxe Carcassonne, you could say. Now, my problem with this is that, yes, okay, it's compatible with other expansions, but how long is it going to take for them to bring out all those expansions they've brought to date in this new format? And if you, would you play a game of Carcassonne where your map kept differing from really good artwork to, let's face it, not exactly bad artwork, was it, on the original Carcassonne? It still looked pretty when you put it together, but it's going to look so mismatched now if you put any expansions with it. If you just wanted to get Carcassonne on its own as a base game, then fair enough, this will probably be quite appealing to you. But then if you're looking to only play Carcassonne as a base game, you're wasting a lot of the potential that the expansions bring. And if you want a base game version of Carcassonne, I could probably recommend certain other versions of Carcassonne other than the base game if you just wanted to go there. We'll get onto one of those later in the first impressions. But I don't know, this one's a bit... I don't see what the point of it is. It just sounds like a cash grab to me. But maybe it'll catch on, maybe it'll appeal to lots of new players who want to figure out what Carcassonne is. But personally, I'm just going to stick with my original Carcassonne with its expansions. I don't want mismatched stuff everywhere. And to be honest, I quite like the old sort of 2000, um, you know what I mean, like, you know, 
year 2000 retro charm that this game has. I don't think it needs a modern update. But the best news of all, and the one that I'm really looking forward to, Sentinels of the Multiverse. This is a game that I love. It featured in my top 10 of all time. I won't spoil it now, but I suggest you check out the list to see how high in the list it made it. I love this superhero game. It is one of my favourite co-op games, and it just always works well for me, whether it's solo play or group play. Well, apparently on October the 16th, it's the iOS version of Sentinels of the Multiverse. Yes, it's coming out. It should be released on October the 16th. It's not going to be the cheapest app in the world. I believe it's going to be several dollars, as they put it. So we're probably talking four or five quid, I suppose. But it's going to feature all the animation and graphical artwork from the card. So it, it will almost be like playing the actual game. But you'll see all the artwork from the cards in nice big vivid colors on the screen. You'll see the environment in the background, you know, just shimmering away, and you'll be able to set up everything from the enhanced edition of the game in terms of heroes and villains and environments, and, oh, this is going to be great. I hope they don't mess up the AI. I hope it will be a good interface. I hope it delivers what it hopes to promise, but I am really excited for this, and I guarantee I will be getting this. If I decide to do board gaming review apps in the future, then... Perhaps this will make a good starting point. Who knows? But I certainly cannot wait to try this out. Very excited. So October the 16th, get your iPads ready for Sentinels in the Multiverse. some first impressions. Now I've got four to talk about today so I'm not going to go into too much detail on each but I'm just going to give you a little quick first impression review as to what I thought of each game. First up, going back to that Z-Man news that I gave you about Carcassonne 2.0, this is Carcassonne South Seas. This is the spin-off which is almost set like in a tropical paradise where you do the same thing of connecting up bridges instead of roads and islands instead of cities and the sea and lakes instead of the uh, farms so it's all basically the same thing but what you do instead of the scoring track and you know taking meeples off to score points is that you take meeples off in order to collect goods seashells bananas and fish and the idea is is that when you collect a certain amount of each you can buy these ships that are worth certain victory points so instead of going just on a basic scoring track, you are trying to collect specific combinations of goods so that you can buy the higher point ships. And to do this, you are trying to decide which islands are good to get, which bridges are good to get. You know, can you potentially collect lots of fish early by playing a tile with a fishing boat on it? Can you try and share the loot or steal the loot even from other people if you can sneak into their island or their bridge, that kind of thing? And it's it looks really pretty. I mean, it's nice colours. It really does look like a tropical map when you set it out. And it's a nice little twist on the game. Do I think it's better than the original Carcassonne? Well, yes, if you're talking the base game only. Effectively, what South Seas is, is kind of like a rehash of what traders and builders did for the basic Carcassonne with the wares that you got for the cities that scored victory points at the end. I know it's slightly different. Here you collect certain types and you convert them into 
ships for victory points in the basic Carcassonne you simply just collect it and whoever has the most gets more points so there is a difference but it's effectively scratching the same itch for me I would say that this is a very cool implementation of Carcassonne and if you are looking to only get one Carcassonne or just a base game then I would certainly recommend going for this it's a very good way to play it um, if you're trying to get lots of expansions, then South Seas is unlikely to get any expansions whatsoever. So you're probably going to be stuck with that. That being said, you can pick this up for about 20 quid, 21 quid. So it's actually a cheap game to buy. And certainly one that I would recommend. So if you want to give Carcassonne a new twist, get South Seas and give it a shot. Continuing the positive side of the first impressions, we're going to move on to the Manhattan Project. I have been trying to get this game to the table for so long. I have several mates who have this game and every time they bring it to the club I'm always teaching something else new so I couldn't join in. It's been doing my head in for so long I've heard that this is a great worker placement game and I have to admit I wasn't disappointed. It's probably not one that's going to make my collection because I'm a little bit concerned that it might not have enough lasting appeal if you play too many games and plus I know too many people who own it so there's not much incentive. But the game in general is really good. It's a worker placement game where you are building weapons of mass destruction. Now you're not launching these things, so don't worry about the controversial theme here. You're just building the things, that's it. But the way that the worker placement aspect happens is really cool. You've got one board where you can place a worker to do all sorts of things. Get the uh, yellow cake, whatever it's called, for the fuel for the bombs to actually you know, actually make the bombs, build buildings which go on your little board that you have in front of you that you can place more workers in. You've got different types of workers, you've got your basic one, you've also got engineers, you've got scientists and you need different ones for different things. You can launch airstrikes on other people to damage their buildings so they can't be used. It's a really cool game and one that I was not disappointed to finally get to the table. Sadly it's not going to make the collection mainly because I can't justify the cost for the fact that many people people I know own it, but if they ever bring it to the table and suggest a game, chances are I'm going to be jumping straight in. This is a very good worker placement game. The Manhattan Project, give it a shot. Now we're going to start dropping it a notch. This one next is, it's an okay game, but I wasn't particularly impressed with it, and that's Sons of Anarchy. Now, I know nothing about the TV show that this is based on. I didn't even realise the TV show for this existed when I played the game. I just thought it was a standalone game that everyone was looking forward to. Then I did a little bit of research, and I was like, oh, right, so that's what it's based on. And to be fair, it does capture the theme of the show fairly well. But what you are doing, essentially, is that you control a biker gang, and you are proceeding to various locations that are done by these really cool coaster tiles. I'll admit, the production in this game is pretty cool. And on these locations, you are attempt you are buying guns so that you can fight off other gang members. You are buying contraband that you can sell in the black market. And you are also trying to hire new bikers to your gang. And effectively, all you do for several turns is just move around these locations, occasionally fight off other players, and sell off contraband in order to get money to win the game. Now, it's okay, but I just found myself getting a bit bored with it. You've got a lot of actions that you can do, and it's dictated by how many members are in your gang. But everybody basically just spends the first couple of turns building up their gang to max so that they've got all the actions in the world. So it does slow the game down quite a bit when you get to that point. Also, 
I just didn't find it that fun. I mean, you, you move your bikers to a location, and if nobody else has used it, or nobody else is sharing it with you, you can use its ability. The combat in this is basically done by dice with modifiers based on how many people you have there, but rarely does a combat ever happen where it's a close session. Normally one side completely overwhelms the other and you might as well not bother rolling the dice. So it's, I don't know, I was a bit disappointed with this one. It was okay to try it, but as area control games go, I suppose you could call it area control, you know, you have to go to specific points and use it. So I suppose it's kind of a hish-hash of area control and worker placement, but now I wasn't particularly impressed with this one, so I'm going to be giving this one a miss. Sons of Anarchy. And now probably the most controversial first impression I'm going to give, and that is the majorly hyped Dead of Winter. Dead of Winter is a semi-cooperative game set in a post-apocalyptic zombie world where the zombies are kind of like the backdrop rather than actually the focus of the game, which I must admit is a welcome change. The idea is, is that you are a colony of human survivors and each of you has your own secret objective that you have to complete in order to win the game. But also, you have to at least complete the cooperative mission, which is the scenario at the start of the game. Now you can also have a betrayer, which is like a traitor mechanic from something like Battlestar Galactica, Shadows, that kind of thing, and he will try to mess you up, but he also has his own agenda that he's trying to do, and the idea is, is that because you are going to locations and fishing for items and doing things like that, because you also have to do your own agenda, it makes the suspicion across the table basically flare up to silly levels as everyone accuses everyone, and that is pretty cool. On top of that, you've also got these crossroad cards, which you, when someone's having their turn, the person to their right picks up the card, and if a certain event has happened on that turn, or if a certain setup has arisen, they stop the game, read the event, and do its effects. And this is a slightly cool theme, when it ever works. My problem with it is that I had a lot of cards which basically were no chance they were ever going to happen. Some of them, they range from basically will always trigger, like there's a certain amount of people left in the colony, pretty much every time that's going to trigger. Or there's two people out and about at locations, well yeah, that's easily going to trigger. But then you get ones that say, so and so must have this character and they must be at this place. So you're hoping that in a four or five player game that so and so has got this character exactly where you need it at exactly the time that you pick up the card. The chances of that ever coming into play are so small that there's no point of the card being in the deck. So I was a little bit put off by that. I mean it's a nice idea and I reckon it could probably work at better times and it is a nice little twist but it just didn't seem to have much of an impact. I just reckon maybe they needed a you know, more triggerable events that would happen. But it is quite cool to have the person next to you basically say, you know, looking at you, anticipating that you're going to do something. But most of the time I pick up the card and I just go, oh well, because I know it's never going to happen, so what's the point? And also, I'm glad the zombies are the backdrop, but they're very mechanical in this game. They literally just pop up as a kind of, like, warning. You know, they don't actually march around the place and start eating people. They just pile up at a location, and if they get over a certain level, then they start inflicting wounds. So it's very Euro in the way it works. And that's kind of abstracting zombies to an extent. I mean, I'm glad that they're just the backdrop for this game, but I didn't expect them to be quite so abstracted in that sense. 
we had a crisis card on our first turn and it basically we couldn't pass it and i'll get onto these later but it spawned about 12 zombies right at the colony we didn't do anything else with those zombies for the rest of the game they didn't attack they didn't do anything so what was the point of spawning them there i mean what, what's the threat they just didn't seem like much of a threat people lost wounds mainly from just going around the place and dying from frostbite there's a red die you have to roll every time you do anything in this game and it just completely mullers you it's very unforgiving i mean okay fair enough frostbite makes sense you wander out into the cold and you might get frostbite although seriously i mean you know how long do you have to spend out in the cold to get frostbite these days when you're wrapped up in winter clothing but i don't know i digress but you also have to roll to see if you take a wound from a zombie every time you kill a zombie now in hand-to-hand -hand combat i might accept that but with guns there's a sniper rifle which um, ignores the dice which is fair enough but for some reason the sniper rifle can shoot from one location to any other location which is kind of weird i mean seriously is there a convenient straight line between all of these locations and then on top of that if i shoot a zombie with a handgun chances are it's not going to inflict a wound on me i've shot it at range that's the whole point of using a gun so i don't know the little they're very nig the niggly things you know they're minor issues but they do just ruin the theme of the game for me sometimes when they just keep piling up over and over again last night on earth had this problem with me I just think zombie games are a difficult one to get right, regardless of whether you make them a backdrop or not. On top of that, the next thing I'll mention is the Crisis cards, which are effectively exactly the same as the Crisis cards in Battlestar Galactica. It is a complete rip-off. But it's the same thing where you have, as a group, you have to collect a certain amount of resources in the round, otherwise bad stuff happens. If you collect them all, then chances are nothing actually happens. You just avoid the bad, which is a bit of a letdown. But all these cards are is basically collect five of a resource. That's it. Five food, five medicine, five tools, whatever. There's no variation in these cards. It is just collect five of a resource. It's a grinding fest. They turned Dead of Winter into a World of Warcraft game, basically. And they're very difficult to beat these things. I mean, you've got random locations with random items. How exactly are you guaranteed to get five of a particular thing to use for the crisis? that you don't already need to use on yourself, like healing or feeding yourself. That's when you're cooperating. I was a betrayer in that game, and usually every time I'm the evil player, I was like, yes, I'm gonna have so much good, I'm gonna have good times here. I failed one crisis for the group. It spawned a lot of zombies. Nothing else happened with those zombies for the rest of the game. For the rest of the crisis cards, I didn't need to participate to fail them. They just failed by themselves because it's a nigh on impossible to get those resources, let alone when one player isn't actively getting the resources for the crisis cards on a regular basis. And if you pull two in a row that require the same resource, so I just had one that claimed five medicine, then the next one you get is claim another five medicine. I'm not even sure there's ten medicine in the game to be able to give to those crisis cards, let alone do two in a row. I mean, it's just, you can be destroyed utterly by those things. In the end, we easily lost as a co-op, but because I couldn't get the guns I needed for my particular objective, because let's face it, you have to stand at a location and just on endlessly search and search and search and hope you get it. And most of these objectives are so obvious that you're trying to do them anyway. I mean, I had to collect four guns and arm at least four of my guys with guns or something. Now, come on, if I'm kitting all my guys to be badass gun freaks, surely people are going to figure out that's my objective. They're going to know that's out of the ordinary. 
Whether they know I'm a betrayer or not, I don't know. But it, I don't know. I don't hate this game. I think it's still good, and I would happily play it again. But I was expecting more from this. I know a lot of people are saying this is the new highness for semi-co-op games, and I'll admit, it's a good game, and I do would I would happily play it again. But it's not one that's going to make my collection. There are just too many small niggles I have with the game to class this as a great one. And I know certain people I that I game with are going to have my head on a spike for saying that. But I don't know. It just it didn't hit right for me. It's there's just too much that I have issues with in the game. And that's not even getting onto stupid things like there is a character called Sparky the dog, which apparently has no limitations as to wield weapons so apparently the dog can wield handguns no no no, no, i'm sorry that's ridiculous and oh yeah we forgot about the whole teleporting items thing which is the fact that every time you pick up an item you can give it to anybody in the group despite them not being anywhere near you so it's there's a lot of things that detract from the theme that just put me off so play it i suggest play it you may think it's fantastic and i'm perfectly happy if you do because i think for a lot of people this is a solid game for them for me it's just not the new highness that i was expecting so that's dead of winter to the discussion topic and I'm going to talk about controversial themes. This is not going to be a long rant, but well, I said it was a discussion. It is actually a rant. Recently, I've been seeing people really go toe-toe on Board Game Geek with regards to the themes that are put in certain games. Uh, freedom... No, actually, I'll get onto that one later. First of all, I'm going to talk about Five Tribes. Now, Five Tribes is a game I've recently done a written review for, and I really enjoy it. It's a cool little Euro game. Not for everyone, but it's a cool Euro game. But there's a thread on Board Game Geek that has been going on for ages where people are getting a bit uptight about the fact that you buy slaves from the market and potentially sacrifice those slaves in order to summon the genies that you do. Despite the fact that the game makes no reference to the word sacrifice, anywhere in it. Just enjoy the game and just accept it's part of the theme because let's face it that is kind of how the slave trade thing works in the Arabian Night Tales. There are slaves in Arabian Night stories. We know this. So why is it such a problem? I just don't get it. There's other things to work. I mean let's face it where do most of these board games get manufactured? Usually China isn't it? Doesn't China employ cheap labor and things like that? Well, I don't see people having an uptight about that sort of thing, so why are they focusing on such niggly problems in a board game? And to go back to Freedom of the Underground Railroad, if you've played that, that is a historical game based on the abolitionist movement, where you had to get your slaves from America to Canada. Wow, I mean, I like the game, I own it, and it is done very well, but where's everybody jumping the, you know, jumping over the out of their prams about that one because that is a stronger theme than occasional buying of slaves in a little euro game so i just don't get why people focus on these things and can't just enjoy it you know these people aren't trying to promote negative things like slave labor and that when they do their games or any other really iffy theme i mean i've seen some you know, slightly controversial themes out there. I mean, you've got, you know, all the games that involve backstabbing. There's all sorts of uh, fairly negative stuff in there. But I just don't see why people have to really 
worry about it. It's just a board game. If you're worrying too much about what the board game has as part of its theme, you're just not going to enjoy the game and you're probably not going to enjoy the hobby. Because let's face it, there's going to be other games out there that are going to promote fairly distressing things. I mean, sacrificing people? Um, even Terra Mystica has that. You're effectively, technically, sacrificing your priests in order to do all the work as the Darklings. I don't see people getting uptight about that one. And, you know, Dead of Winter, you know, you've got all the backstabbery and stuff like that, and it's Manhattan Project that I talked about earlier. You're building nuclear weapons. I don't see people jumping over the, you know, jumping out of the prime on that one. You know, you're building nuclear weapons. Okay, not launching them, but you're still building the things. How come that's not getting argued about? But I don't play these games and get really uptight about that. I mean, I did my review for Five Tribes, and I never mentioned anything about... buying slaves anywhere. I might have mentioned it as a part of the rule, but I never went into detail on it. And that's because when I played the game, I didn't think of it like that. I didn't think of it as controversial or bad. I just thought, this is a mechanic of the game. It fits. Therefore, I'm going with it. You know. And that way, I enjoy the game. I just think if you think too hard on these things, you're not going to enjoy the game as much as you should. And you're denying yourself the pleasure of playing some very good games out there if you get really uptight about this sort of thing. So, I just personally think, keep your... Well, I don't know how to say it, really. I just think, don't focus so much on whether a theme is controversial or not. Just enjoy the game for what it is, and I'm sure you will have much more fun gaming as a result. Rant over. Okay, and now on to my top 10, and going with the theme of this particular podcast episode, I'm talking about my top 10 themes in board games. Now, I'm going to stretch the definition here and go top 10 themes slash types, because some people might look at one or two of the things on this list and think that's not actually a theme, that's a mechanic, or that's a type of game, you know, it's a different thing, and I just think, just to stave the crowd, I'm going to focus and say it's theme slash types, so it kind of covers both bases, but basically what I'm saying is that these are the types of themes in games that I instantly think, ooh, I'd like to try that game out, and I don't mean mechanics, so worker placement, area control, um, you know, resource management, that kind of thing, these aren't ones that are going to be in the list because those are mechanics. You know, the card drafting, for example, is not a theme, it's a mechanic. Therefore, that's how I'm drawing the line with the definition. But then, for example, uh, zombies is a theme. Uh, miniature games is a type more than a theme, but it's a it would fit on the list. Exploration games, that kind of thing, it would fit on this list. So that's why I'm kind of going with it. However, what I'm not doing is, I mentioned zombies, I'm not going down the slight cheat route of simply going zombies, dinosaurs, pirates, that kind of thing. Because yes, they are themes in a sense, but I just find that's a little bit boring. And to be honest, there isn't really a particular one of those I can think of that I would gravitate towards, like, instantly. You know, pirates, mm, meh, I don't mind them, but they're not major. I like dinosaurs, but I'm not exactly going to go straight to a game just because it happens to have dinosaurs in it. So I'm not really talking about that kind of thing. Maybe this will make more sense when I actually get on with the list. So, you know, stick with my definition, top 10 themes slash types. I'm going for it. 
Well, it's my top ten, so. My number ten, possibly one of the more controversial choices on this list, is abstract games. Now, abstract, you know, you may think, well, hang on a minute, abstract doesn't even have a theme, so how can that qualify? Well, I said theme slash types. Abstract games I do enjoy. There are some really good ones out there. I own Hive, and Hive is a very cool game where you've got the tiles with the bugs, pictures on them, and you have to surround your opponent's queen bee. It's a nice little puzzle game. But there are other types of games which are fairly abstract, like Nourishima Hex. That's a half-decent game where you place tiles and set them up in a certain way to try and destroy your opponent's base, start the war, and then all guns go blazing. It's quite a cool little game. But then I just like traditional abstracts, you know, those Pentago is a very good little abstract game. Two player, really quick, and it works well. And even all the other ones that I've played, um, you know, I can't name any specifically, but, well, chess even. I used to play chess all the time back in school and college, and chess is an abstract game. I do enjoy these types of games, granted they're not my favourites, these aren't, you know, it's number 10, but I do respect the amount of strategic thought that comes into an abstract game, particularly when it's just a small game that costs less than a tenner, and yet promotes such good thought processes. So, number 10, abstract games. My number 9 is deduction games. Now, deduction meaning specifically that you're trying to figure out something. Now, this doesn't have to necessarily be the full premise of the game and I suppose actually I'm going to make that point now that these types don't have to be the only thing that the game has they can just be a part of it now deduction there are some games that are just pure deduction like sleuth for example you have to figure out what combination of diamonds I believe have been taken out of the game by asking all the other players questions crossing them off a bit like Cluedo in that respect but done a lot more complicated and to this day I have still not won a game of that I'm not too good at deduction games, I must say. But even just something like figuring out who's the traitor in Battlestar Galactica, that kind of thing, it's good, and it's good fun. I'll admit that it's low on the list mainly because I think it's mainly the traitor aspect that I like the deduction thing on, or figuring out certain combinations of things. I don't tend to go mad for sleuth or certain other games like that, but it is nice to test the brain muscles every now and again. So... It's not a major favourite, but I do like deduction in uh, in certain games when it's there as an aspect of it, rather than a major, major part of the game. So, number nine, deduction. Number eight is on this list purely because of theme, and this is going to be like the main premise of the game rather than a little aspect of it, and that's horror games. Now, there aren't many horror games that I've played, but I really do enjoy a game that really does capture that sort of tension that you can get from a horror game, particularly when it's really thematic in how encounters and interaction is done. The best example I can think of is the Arkham Horror and Eldritch Horror series, which is probably the pinnacle of a decent horror game. In that, you've got Cthulhu monsters, you've got all these hellish creatures to fight, you've got the occult stuff to deal with, and you've got all those encounters that are really thematic, they tell the story, and that's probably what I like about horror games. They can tell a really good narrative story. I've tried other ones like Mansions of Madness before, and they're okay, they do a good story, but 
it's kind of lacking that one compared to Arkham Horror. But there are other ones that are pretty cool out there, like Fury of Dracula, for example, and you know, and even certain zombie games are technically horror, so they count as well. But horror games are very good, they're very thematic. There there isn't enough of them, I don't think, and not enough good ones in my opinion, which is why this doesn't get higher on the list. But I certainly do get interested when a horror game comes out and it proves to actually be a good spine-tingling horror game. So, number eight, horror. Number seven is by Happy Thief, i.e. party games. Party games do count, it's a type of game, and it's, you know, you can have, well, okay, it's not really a party theme, but it's a party type. It works. And party games are a great laugh. My only thing with party games is that they do work better with people that you know. They're great with friends and family. They are okay with people you've not met before, new players, but they can lack because some of them require you to have in-depth knowledge about what the other person is like. If you play it with new players, you run the risk of not being able to enjoy the game as much. But Dixit is a great party game, Concept's a good party game. I burned out a bit on Cards Against Humanity, but that was a good laugh for a while. But then all the other stuff, like Time's Up and technically I suppose Liar's Dice Counts. And um, what other party games can I think of? Um, Apples and Apples is technically Cards Against Humanity. I've said Time's Up. Boulder Dash, another good party game. Things like Plucking Pears. Uh, Telestrations, that's another good one. The uh, Chinese Whisperers game. So party games can be a good laugh, and I do enjoy playing them. They can't really go higher on the list because, as I said, they do fall flat a bit when playing with new players. Playing it with people you know, though, they're a great laugh. Party games. Number six is a very big theme choice, and it's going to encapsulate a lot of games, so obviously, you know, it's kind of like the overbearing theme of them, but that is fantasy games. Fantasy games can involve anything from orcs and goblins and that style of thing to even just mythological and fantastical creatures, rather than being the typical orc and goblin thing. But games like, you know, Defenders of the Realm is a very good fantasy game out there, and all the sort of Lord of the Rings games and things like that, that it's all really good fun to play a fantasy game. I used to play Dungeons and Dragons a lot in my old days. I really like dungeon crawl games like Descent 2.0, and I used to play Hero Quest all the time. So I do like the whole sort of adventurers against monsters type thing, and fantasy games are obviously the best way to go about it. Now, a lot of fantasy games can fall down into the realm of miniature games, which is not particularly my area I'm interested in anymore. Spoiler, not on the list. But I did used to play a lot of Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40k in the old days, and it was a good fun. I've kind of grown out of it now, so it's not something that I really feel like doing, plus it's getting as expensive as old Get Out just to get the models, let alone pay someone to paint the things because I can't paint for toffee. And But Fantasy, still very enjoyable when a decent Fantasy game comes out. And to be honest, if the game comes out and it has a Fantasy theme, I'm going to give it a look regardless of what it's about, really. Unless they somehow try to combine Fantasy with something like Kingdom Builder. What kind of spawn of hell would that create, I wonder? But I digress. Fantasy number six. Number five, we're going pretty much along the same lines of fantasy in that it's a big over-encapsulating theme, and that's sci-fi, science fiction games. We're talking space exploration, we're talking space combat, so we're talking 
not even space even there are other sci-fi games that are out there we'll go with the space one for the starters so we're talking twilight imperium 3 uh, exodus empires of the voids a game i quite like you know all, all the spacey games and space wars science and lasers and guns and all that sort of thing but then we're also talking sci-fi from a kind of futuristic perspective. Android Netrunner is probably the best one I can think of off the list, which technically doesn't involve space and it doesn't involve lasers, but it's all the cyber terrorism and the servers and computers, you know, really cool themes that you can get with some of those games. And there are some really cool games out there that use sci-fi as a theme. So I'm certainly not going to have any digressions about testing out a game that does sci-fi. Uh, going with the miniatures thing, Level 7 Omega Protocol is another great example of a good sci-fi game, which is effectively Aliens the board game. You can't really call it anything else. You have a squad of marines going into a space station that is overrun by aliens. What more do you like? You might as well have just stuck the alien license on it. And to be fair, why didn't they? I wish they could have. <laughs> Level 7 Omega Protocol would have been ultimate if they'd managed to get the official alien license to use with that game. Oh, an alien miniatures game. Wouldn't that be awesome? Please do that. Please, somebody make this happen. But, you know, I know you're making Star Wars, which is good. Star Wars is another sci-fi theme, which is good. The LCG is good fun. And this new Imperial Assault thing coming out next year is obviously going to be the new hotness when it comes to miniature games. Might even get it myself, because friends of mine already have Omega 7 and Descent. So it might be nice to get Star Wars just to go along with it. But, number five, sci-fi games. There's some great ones out there, but there's still four themes I like better. Into the top four, and number four is economic games. Now, economic doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're just buying and selling money. So we're not talking things like acquire and all that kind of thing. We're talking also in terms of resource management, which is a mechanic more than anything else. So economic games can be just simply managing your resources. It doesn't have to be money, although money is usually interwoven in these things. But in Terra Mystica, you have to micromanage your you know, buildings and money and uh, priests and power gems, that kind of thing. And Lahav, you've got the money you make along with the goods you sell. In Agricola, you've got to manage your resources and your goods that you make and money you make in that game. And in nations, you've got your money and you've got your resources and that that you have to keep track of. I like those types of games. I really like the way you have to sort of plan out how you're going to do what you want to do with the resources you've got. Now, that's not to say I don't like a game that only deals with money. Technically, Alhambra has only money you've got to deal with, and that is... I don't know, would Alhambra be classed as an economic game? I suppose. I mean, you've got to manage your money and buy buildings, so I suppose it would count. But you know, I don't necessarily have to just mean money. Resources, you know, I mean, Power Grid, we'll talk about that one. You know, that's like one of my most hated games of all time. But even I say that the resource management in that game, where you've got to manage the uh, coal and the oil and stuff like that, is pretty cool. I don't like the fact that you've got a nickel dime that game to the 10th degree in terms of all the auctions you do, but certainly I do enjoy the resource part of it. But there are loads of games in my collection that involve managing resources or money to an extent, and it is just highly enjoyable for me. Maybe it's my background as an accountant, maybe that's the reason. But number four, economic games. Number three. Now, number three is... 
I wish I owned more games that had this theme. It's difficult for publishers to get a game like this and make it work really well. Also the problem I have with these games is that yes I enjoy them and I would love to have them, but it's difficult to get them to the table because they usually take endless hours to play, or are really complex that I can't teach my new gamer friends. But number three is civilization games. I really love the whole thing of building up a civilization and making it your own. Now people will wonder, well hang on a minute, you're not a big fan of the Civilization PC game, so what gives with that? Well the reason for that is because that PC game goes on for weeks and months and it's just so long. I haven't got the patience to do it for that long. And on top of that, it's more finding the time to just play the game in general. I mean, I enjoy Civilization 4 and 5. In fact, I'd probably say I prefer Civilization 4 to 5 because I just think it has more stuff you can do in it. Maybe I just haven't tried it enough, number five, but I digress. You know, that is the reason why I don't necessarily play the PC game. Board game for Civilization, though. Love it. I think it's a really cool game by Fantasy Flight. It's just super complex. You just can't teach it to anyone really easily. Uh, Through the Ages, again, it's a fun game, but it's just so long and complex. You just can't get it to the table. But then there are other simpler ones. I mean, Nations is technically a Civilization game. You build up your you know, Persia or Rome, whichever you're doing, and build it up through time. Um, Clash of Cultures, another half-decent one, which doesn't make the collection because there are some niggles I have with it, but maybe the new expansion coming out at Essen this year will make that so much better. But civilization stuff in general, I mean, even Twilight Imperium 3 is technically building up your space civilization. So it's that kind of theme that I really do like in games in general. Not many people have pulled it off to such a great extent. I think it is a very interesting and a very fun theme to have in a game, so I will always at least want to play the game. And chances are I will like the game, I just won't be able to justify the cost of buying it when I know I won't get it to the table very much. But if someone comes along and says, do you want to play the Civilization game, chances are I'm going to jump straight into it. So number three, Civilization. My number two, now you might think this is a mechanic rather than a theme, but personally I think this is a theme or a type, I think this fits with the list. And number two is bluffing and negotiation. Now some people might separate the two, but I think that most of the time any game that involves negotiation is going to involve a certain degree of bluffing. There aren't many games out there that are just straight up negotiation without some bluffing involved. You know, because one of the arts of negotiation is being able to lie on occasion, so therefore you've got to bluff at some stage. But I really do get a kick out of the bluffing and negotiation style games, even if it's just slight. I mean, in games like the Shadows of Camelot and Battlestar, you have to bluff uh, if you're the traitor. Uh, Cosmic Encounter is a really good game I like, and that's negotiation and bluffing all the way. There's bang the dice game even, you know, you've got to bluff as to which guy you are. Shadow Hunters has a similar thing, you know, bluffing as to which one you are. Um, I don't like Coup, I must admit, I think the mechanics of that spoil the game. But um, Kakalak and Poker, the small little card game where you have to hand the card with a certain bug type on it to other players and straight up lie to their face or tell the truth, your choice. And next month, I cannot wait for Sheriff of Nottingham to come out in October, which is basically just going to be my ultimate bluffing and negotiation game personified, I think. I've seen this played on Dice Tower Live, I've seen it played by other groups on YouTube and that, and it just looks like so much fun, I really want that game. It's going to be an auto-purchase for me, no matter what. But I think, I'm not trying to say I'm a deceitful person, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong on that, but... 
I certainly just like the idea of because it promotes interactivity. One thing that's great in a game that isn't Euro is the interactivity and bluffing in negotiation games is just pure interaction. There's nothing else you can call them. They are pure interaction and the laughs and the stories you get with certain players as to how people lied to others and stuff like that. It's just great. So it deserves a number two spot. Question is, I love it so much. So what beat it? Number one, well, if you've got the gist of how I'm classifying themes and types in this list, then you're going to pretty much have seen this one coming if you know anything about my game collection. Number one is personified by lots of my favourite games that involve like Sentinels in the Multiverse, Ghost Stories, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, Marvel Legendary, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert. It's Hanabi even, you know, even Anirim when I get hold of that. That's technically a two-player. But I'm talking about cooperative games. Cooperative games I just really enjoy because it's not just the enjoyment of them, because you work together, it's interactive, and they're generally, quote, fun themes. But one thing I love about cooperatives is that they're generally, well, most of the time, you know, there are some complex ones out there, but a lot of them are easy to teach to new gamers. And I have to teach new gamers quite often with my friends and my girlfriend, and cooperative games just work well because they don't feel like they're getting beaten to a pulp by you, who's the expert of the game. They feel like they're able to better understand the game and just enjoy it when they know that you're working with them. And you don't have to feel bad about giving them too much information because you want them to help you win. That's the whole point. So I've been able to teach games like Pandemic, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, uh, Forbidden Desert, all these nice little cool, even Hanabi, to various no non-gamers and they pick them up and love them. Cooperative games just seem to work with new players, but even with veteran players, I really like a lot of cooperative games. And that includes semi-cooperative as well, so Cutthroat Caverns and, to a lesser extent, Dead of Winter. I admit, I did rag about it a bit earlier in this podcast, but it still is enjoyable despite its issues, so, you know, I do, I would happily play it again. But then you've also got Shadows of a Camelot and Battlestar Galactica with the traitor aspect. And traitor aspects are brilliant in these cooperative games, you know, having that uncertainty of who's actually working with you. It's just, I don't know, there's very few cooperative games I don't like. In fact, I'm just trying to think of any cooperative games I really don't like. And I can't really think of any. Not that I hate as such. I suppose... No, I can't really think of a cooperative game that I really hate. I'll certainly have cooperative games that I don't think are as good, mainly because of mechanics uh, or fiddliness, that kind of thing, but there are certainly no cooperative games I can think of that I just really hate. So, you know, it is a theme that has managed to avoid any bad press from me, really. Other than Niggles, I go see Dead of Winter. But, you know, it's done really well. I really enjoy these type of games. If a new cooperative game is coming out, I am going to instantly want to know about it to see if it could make my collection, especially if it's got a solo variant because that's the other thing. Cooperative games have a solo mode in them pretty much off the bat. So instantly I've got multiple ways I can play that game. They will last forever in my collection. Love them to bits. Cooperative games, my number one theme slash type.
and that's episode 22 wrapped up with my top 10 themes. Now, obviously, like I said, the definition for that is a little stretched, so bear with me, you know, hopefully I didn't put anything that was just a straight up mechanic on that list, but hopefully this gives you an idea of what types of games I go for. So if you've got a new game and you want to see if I'm going to give it a good review or you think that I'm going to jump at the chance to play it, then have a look at that top 10 and see what you think. Now this one is not going to get put on Board Game Geek because on Board Game Geek when you put up a geek list you are relaying it to a game. Now I suppose what I could do is put up the top 10 list on Board Game Geek and give an example of a really good game as long as I explain it well. So I suppose I might do it some stage but for now it's on the podcast. I want you to listen to the podcast That's half the reason I do it. The podcast will continue. I know the YouTube channel has to stop, at least for now anyway, who knows, maybe I'll be able to bring it back in the long term future, but I'm going to concentrate on podcasts and written reviews now and I think the Broken Meeple will benefit from that. It also might mean that I'll get more time to actually play some games rather than just write about the things. So that's it for now, that's episode 22. I'm going to get on with testing out some new games today that I bought at the recent demo day by Board Game Extras, including that weird Thunderbolt Apache Leader one that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. So I'm going to get on with doing that. I'll see some of you at StabCon South next weekend, and I'll talk to the rest of you either on whose podcast, maybe, who knows, but failing that, definitely on episode 23. Take care, bye for now, and enjoy playing games. To find out more about board games and the Broken Meeple in general, you can visit one of the three main avenues we have online. First up, there is the blog itself on www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find the Broken Meeple on Facebook. Please come and like the page and share your thoughts with me. And on Twitter, you can find me at the Broken Meeple.